After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Maybe he was going to rip it apart for her like he did that lion. <laughs> and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So this, this verse goes rather quick, but just hear what he says here. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails and when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. That's dedication right there. <laughs> then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Shimshon, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. Rather weak English translation there. When he says, after that, I will quit, it might be better put, and I'm not going to stop until I get that revenge. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Wild story, like I said. Wild man. Last time we saw Samson storm out of his own wedding feast after killing 30 Philistines for their clothes because he lost a bet about a lion he had ripped in half. A lot there. <laughs> There's a lot there to that story. Uh, it is unclear because we're not super familiar with these wedding traditions if Samson would have consummated the marriage with his wife or not. There were some instances of wedding feasts during this time where that would take place at the end of the seven days. There are others where it would take place the first night, but the celebration would go on for seven days. It's really not clear. There is also some evidence that Samson had engaged in what I'll call here a long distance marriage. That there were these weddings of convenience that would take place at this time and in this culture where you would marry the woman, but you wouldn't take her into your home. You wouldn't go into her house, but there would be a relationship there. And as you went off and, and lived your life. So it, it kind of strikes us as, a, as a, an excuse to have someone to sleep with whenever you go down to Timnah. If that's what's going on here. It's a very unusual non-Hebrew, non-Israelite setup here. But whether he had consummated his marriage or not, he decides I'm going to return and that's exactly what I'm going to do with my wife. And so he returns with a gift. He returns with a young goat, which sounds weird to us. But remember, wealth was calculated through possessions at this time. So he's coming back probably with a, an I'm sorry gift. You know, gentlemen, if you ever, you know, mess up, a young goat is just the thing <laughs> to, uh, to calm the angry woman. Um, <laughs> But as we saw in chapter 14, verse 20, Samson, after he left and had been shamed and had been made to look foolish during this wedding feast, his wife was given to his best man. And, uh, you know, I don't know why they chose to do that. It, the father is a practical man, I guess. I'm not paying for two receptions. So, you know, uh, then off you go. You marry this guy instead. So Samson here is understandably indignant. He's not happy about this. Now, he has not acted well, but still, I mean, 
that's no way to react without at least making a phone call or something like that, right? So he says, you know, the last thing I did when I killed 30 men in Ashkelon and I took their clothes and I satisfied my debt that way, you could debate over whether or not that was the right thing to do. But this time, whatever I do to you, I am fully justified in doing that. Now, we might still argue over that, but, you know, you cannot deny this is an insult to a man's pride. And certainly, with all the other things the Philistines had done, you can see why he's angry here. So, he rounds up 300 foxes. This could also be translated jackals. It's a dog-like critter from this part of the world. Um, must have taken some time. I, I couldn't get over that when I was reading through this. I'm going to go get 300 foxes, you know, and round them all up. Now, you know, jackals run in packs, which is why some people think that's probably the best way to do it. And he kind of does like an old yeller and rounds them all up against the wall and gets them 300. He would take two, tie a torch in between their tails and light it. Why? Well, because that way they'll run dragging this thing through the this grain. They're not going to break loose. They're not going to be able to go away. Um, not an idea I would have come up with, I must tell you, but he does this to burn the storage, the fields, to burn the orchards. It's something I think we can grasp to help this story make a little more sense. This probably wasn't one night. This probably wasn't something he did all at once, like he's trying to you know, corral 300 foxes. Uh, but this is something he kept doing. You know, he's, he's committing these acts of arson against the Philistines, and they're wondering who this is. Maybe it was one night. I don't know. It's in the Bible. That just seems to be the way that makes the most sense to me. Well, the Philistines find out that it's Samson, who is still technically the son-in-law of this Timnite, and they already knew about Samson, that he was an Israelite and a Hebrew, and that he had made them all look bad at this wedding feast. So the Timnite and his, his, Samson's wife, they were killed. They were burned alive in retaliation. So he swears revenge against them. And all it says, he struck them hip and thigh, which some people speculate might have been a wrestling term. So what does it mean to strike them hip and thigh? Like it's not trying to say, you know, he cut off their hips or something like that. But this could be like that they were, they were broken in half. Like Samson wrecked the Philistines, what you're supposed to get from this here. And this story is a great example, all of chapter 15, of the complicated nature of Samson. You cannot deny he was a great man. He was doing the work of the Lord. He was driving off the Philistines. He was executing the Lord's vengeance upon these people. Yet, it's a very flawed person. And while, according to chapter 14, verse 4, this was all part of God's plan, and God was planning to find a way to stir Samson up to do something like this, you can see that his motivations are selfish, and his actions are questionable, which is that downward spiral of the book of Judges, that as many wonderful things as he did, his character does not attain to even somebody like Barak, who was reluctant and cowardly, but at least he... You know, he didn't marry a Philistine woman and then rip a lion in half and eat the honey at the middle. The inescapable fact for us to see is that God very often raises up and uses people who are not perfect and actually kind of make us uncomfortable. People of whom we disapprove. People who you might even say are sinners to say things like, I wonder if somebody like that's even saved. And yet it seems like God has raised them up to use them. They are God's champions. And this is true in history and in our time. Yet this is also true throughout scripture. Samson's such a perfect example of this. But what about Jacob? Jacob, whose name was changed to what? Israel. Israel. 
the children of Israel. What a glorious name. Yeah, let's talk about Israel a little bit. This is a guy that cheated his brother out of his birthright, lied to his dad by pretending to be his brother, then ran away, goes to his uncle, you know, accidentally, well, not accidentally, he was tricked into marrying the wrong woman. So then he marries another one, you know, just to have two wives, because what's better than one wife? Well, two wives, right? And then he begins in this, this long campaign of trickery back and forth with his uncle. He can see or has children with this, the slaved girls of his wives, and they become his concubines. And then they come back, and he's about to ditch everybody and run the other way. And God has to literally pin him to the ground and make him confront his brother. And we look at, really, this is the guy? This, and this is the same guy that would give his son Joseph a coat of many colors to favor him over his brothers and kind of ensure that they're not going to be very nice to him. And yet, he is the one, Israel, that we use that name. What about David? The man after God's own heart. If you've not wrestled over that, I would encourage you to think through that sometime. You know what David did when, that during the time of the divided kingdom, when he was ruling in, in Judah and uh, Saul's son Ishbosheth was ruling in the north? There were some people that thought, you know what, David's a better ruler than Ishbosheth. Let's get in good with David. They assassinate Saul's son and they bring him to David. Hey, we killed Ishbosheth. David chopped off their hands and feet and head and hung them from the walls of the city. Hmm. <laughs> That's the man after God's own heart. I don't know about that one. He also was the guy that committed adultery with his friend's wife, had his friend killed, was exposed by everybody. He was a rotten father. His son raped his half-sister, and he did nothing about it, causing his other son to stage a coup. And even still, he didn't even want to punish his son then for what had happened. And yet, Jesus Christ is called the son of David. How about Peter? Oh, we love to laugh at Peter. But some of the things Peter did were not so funny. Denied Jesus three times. The night of the crucifixion. Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? I've never seen that man in my entire life. Oh, three times he did that. The Bible says he was cussing too. Cursing and swearing up and down. I've never seen that man in my entire life. You get out of my face. I don't know that. Look, who is he? I don't know. I, I've never heard his name before. And Jesus is in there and knows what's going on. Peter is also the one that after they're preaching the gospel of grace, he begins to get pressured by some of the Pharisees that had got saved and stops eating with the Gentiles. And Paul had to get in his face in front of everybody. Peter. And he was the first pope. You know, that's what they say anyhow. This is, he, was the, he was the one that Jesus, I'm going to build my church on this rock. So these are not, you know, people that were not really, you know, God's men. These were God's men. You can go through church history. I love the story of St. Anthony. Anthony the Great, he's called. Anthony of, uh, of Alexandria. Who was the, the main spear point for the head of the monastic movement. The monks in the desert. Dude was weird. Dude wore a hair shirt. Because he lived in the desert for 60 some years. And after so many decades, he decided that the desert wasn't uncomfortable for him enough anymore. And he didn't feel like he was suffering for the Lord any longer. So he got a goat hair shirt, turned it inside out, and wore it so that he would never be comfortable. That's weird. It's a weird dude. He had some weird thoughts and weird ideas. But you look at the stories about this guy. When, this, when there was persecution going on in, in Egypt, he leaves the desert and goes into the city of Alexandria and begins to stand alongside the other Christians on their trials when they're being tried as Christians. And everybody was too afraid to arrest him because they knew the stories about this guy. He wrote books. He wrote theology. He discipled Athanasius. But he was a weird dude. 
did some weird things. I wouldn't recommend you wearing a hair shirt or buying one for your wife for Christmas. What about Martin Luther? One of the most godly, used by God men in history. But you look at some of the stuff he said and did. And it's, oh, did you have to go there, man? Did you have to call the Pope that? Like, I know you're not down with it, but did you have to, you know, like cuss him out and stuff? Did you have to compare this world to a porta potty in your last sermon with all of the, the imagery that that implies? Did you have to write all that stuff about the Jews at the end of your life? And it gets really, oh my goodness, was this really a good man? Yeah, he was God's man. He was God's man for sure. This is the guy that brought the doctrine of grace through faith back. And yet he's also the one that said, yeah, James, you know, it's a good, but it's not like Romans, you know. And it's like, really? This is the Sola Scriptura guy? You look at the Jesus movement. I'm sure a lot of you saw the movie, uh, Lonnie Frisbee. Guy used miraculously by the Lord, the hippie preacher. Just healing people and like laying hands on folks and prophesying and preaching the gospel and thousands getting saved and baptized. And yet, this dude would go out and party on the weekends. It was kind of an unspoken secret. He's sitting there, you know, making things uncomfortable between him and Chuck Smith. Eventually he gets, you know, leaves and goes away from that. Falls away from the Lord and gets into homosexuality. Dies of AIDS. The story goes he repented at the end of his life. I sure hope he did. I say, oh man, well, don't, don't imitate that guy. You're right, but God used him. God used him in men's life that I know personally that have amazing ministries. What am I trying to say? We cringe at these people and yet you can't help but say... God was in that. You look at Samson and you say, well, this is, this is quite unseemly. I had one of my commentaries that had nothing good to say about Samson, which is interesting because God did. In Hebrews chapter 11, I, I think of Romans 9, 20, where Paul said, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable? Now, we usually think about that in terms of ourselves, but you can't judge nobody else that way either. Who are you to say God can't do that through somebody? As disapproving as we are of men like Samson, we got to be grateful for when God raises up a hero. We say, Lord, raise up a deliverer, and then he does. And we go, oh, did it have to be this guy? Did he have to do that? Did he have to say that thing that just makes us all roll our eyes? You know why we have to be grateful for that? First of all, because we need what they do, but also because it's not like I'm so great either. I know what I'm like. I, I know what my sins are. I know the struggles that I have. I know the dumb things that I've said. I preached to high schoolers for eight years, man. You don't think I said a few things? I'm glad they weren't recording in that service. Not that I was preaching heresy, but you get what I'm saying here. Got to be grateful for that grace. Samson is a mess. But what do we get out of this story? He's the one striking the Philistines. Nobody else is. And we're going to actually see Samson grow up through this chapter. So that's that first principle. I went a little longer on that than I meant to, but I wanted to establish that very clearly. God raises up men who are heroes of the faith that you do not want to imitate in every day of your life. Would you want Samson like babysitting your kids? I don't know if I would. Where's the dog? You know? <laughs> This guy has a, a thing with animals. I don't know. But no lie, I actually had what, that same commentary that didn't like Samson at all. They had a little footnote where they're like, Samson's cruelty to animals cannot be condoned. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. Just, that's not the point of the passage. But anyway, verse 9. All right, let's keep going. I'm having fun. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. You might want to underline that. And the men of Judah said, 
Why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And, as he, and he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So Samson is, is in Judah. He's in the land of Judah. Samson was of the tribe of Dan, but he's in Judah right now in a place called Etam, the cleft of the rocks. So this would have been up in the mountainous, rocky regions where there's a place where he could, he could be and hide out. And he was, I mean, he's kind of a wild man, right? He doesn't even cut his hair, this guy. And these Philistines march into Judah and they start to attack, make a raid. And the Judah's like, hey, what's the deal? Like, we didn't do anything. He said, well, Samson's hiding here and we want him back. And these Israelites go over to Samson and say, hey, we're going to tie you up and give you over to the Philistines. These might be some of my least favorite people in the Bible. Rather than rally behind Samson and say, you're willing to fight the Philistines, we'll go with you. There's 3,000 of them. We're only going to read of 1,000 Philistines, which means they outnumbered them maybe three to one. Plus, you've got Samson, who's going to count for at least 1,000. And they say, hey, Samson, we're, we're here to tie you up. Well, don't you know that we're a subjugated people? Don't you know that they rule over us? You're always causing trouble, Samson. No faith here. No courage. No manhood in Judah. And, and Samson's defiance is kind of refreshing to me. There's actually, uh, I told you about this, my, my daughter loves the Samson cartoon because she's a little girl and he's got big muscles. But... Uh, <laughs> The, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon they did of this story is actually really well done. And this scene especially, because the guy they get to be the voice actor for these guys from Judah, he's like, why did you come here, Samson? You only ever bring us trouble. And like, that's about how they probably would have sounded too. Because why don't you just go away and leave us alone? And, <laughs> and he's like, what? this is the Philistines, guys. Come on. You might wonder why would God raise up such a problematic hero like Samson or the people we just described. Well, now you know why. Because this is what everybody else is like. Why would God raise up this man from birth? That's my guy. Because everybody else was like this. They were cringing, sniveling little cowards. They got a three to one advantage and a superhero on their team. And they say, we'll just give him to you. So that way there's no trouble. This is an unfortunately common occurrence. It happens not just in the Bible, but it happens in our lives too, where you get well-meaning people who should be on your team that want to stand in your way when you're trying to take a stand for God. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. These stories pair together quite nicely. This is about Elijah and Obadiah. Obadiah is uh, not the prophet who wrote the book Obadiah, but this is a different one. The name means servant of Yahweh. Obad is like Ovid or Ovid, and Yah is like Yahweh, so Obadiah. This is after Elijah has called the famine down in the land. It's been about three years. Uh, he has been hiding, and now he comes back. And in verse eight, 
verse 1 here, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Here's the thing. Obadiah is not a bad guy. But let's look at this. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Good guy. He's hiding the prophets so that Jezebel can't get to them. Verse five, Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided their land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. So they're out looking for grass. There's no grazing. There's no pasture land. So we've got to go see if there's anything anywhere. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, All right, the prophet's back. Now we're going to see something, right? Not exactly. He said, how have I sinned <laughs> that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Like, why would you, what did I do to make you hate me, Elijah? To make me go give a message like that back to King Ahab. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I'm gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. He says, I'm not about to be the boy who cried prophet here, Elijah, because he's been looking for you everywhere. And if I tell him I found you, and he comes all the way out here, and you're not there, I'm a dead man, so what did I do to make you hate me so much to ask me to do something like this? Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Here's that whininess coming in again. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he'll kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Another well-meaning, cowardly man standing in the way of the hero. It's like, you just bring in trouble, Elijah. Look, it's not good, but at least we've got things under control. All right, I've got the prophets hid. No more prophets are going to die. There's no more rain, but we're out looking for grass. We'll find some, you know, and, and eventually things will calm down. It can't be, you know, no rain forever. Why? You got to come back and stir up trouble, Elijah. And we know what Elijah's about to do. He's going to kill all the prophets of Baal. He's going to call down fire from heaven. The rain's going to come back. And Obadiah, all he can think is, oh, not this guy. Just like these people that are come to arrest Samson. All too often in the church, we are very good at identifying how other people are doing it wrong rather than appreciating their efforts and standing alongside them. We're much better at groaning at the trouble that dynamic people cause than we are at standing alongside them and recognizing the fact that this is somebody God has raised up. Bold action for the Lord is easy to criticize. They criticized David when he wanted to go fight Goliath. Who do you think you are? Don't you think if he could be beaten, we would have done this? You little punk, you just want to come out here and see a battle because there's nothing good on Netflix to watch. So why don't you go back to dad, take your bread, take your cheese, and get out of here. 
They didn't much care for Jesus doing bold things for, for the Lord either, did they? He casts out demons by the Lord of the demons. It's very easy to criticize bold action for the Lord. When somebody makes hard statements, prophetic statements, you know, when Amos was prophesying in the northern kingdom, the guy in charge of the temple in the north, which shouldn't have been a temple in the first place, but he shows up and he says, why don't you just go back to your farm and prophesy there? Nobody wants you here. Just get lost. Completely disregarding what he was saying. In fact, he was prophesying against this temple. You're just causing trouble. Get gone. I found also when people begin to draw massive numbers to their ministries or, or their, the things they're leading, haters come out of the walls. You start looking for something you can criticize. You know, Christians are, can be really good at cancel culture, unfortunately. Now, don't you know what he said? And one of those things. And, you know, they'll have some clickbait thing on YouTube where it's like, he doesn't believe the gospel. And somebody's face is like, oh, in the thumbnail, you know. And it's, you go look at it, you look at the context, and it's like, all right, that wasn't well framed, but you know what he means, right? So like sometimes, you don't you to look me in the eye and tell me you think that guy doesn't believe in, the, in Jesus. Well, no, but then stop, right? But we do that because people get jealous. You know, I, I said this early on when we had the, the church in the hotel, when people were coming in, and nobody really did this, but I just wanted to cut it off, and it never happened, thankfully. I was like, we're not here to be a refuge for people leaving First Baptist and Highlands because they hate big churches. I'm not going to stand up here and say, that's why, because those big churches, they don't know what's going on. It's really about being a, a small, nimble church. That's what God wants. I was like, we're not going to do that. Let them do what they're doing, and we'll do what we're doing, and God will sort it out in the end. No problems with all that. When people try to do risky outreaches, when Pastor Chuck starts letting hippies into the church, you mean to tell me these kids that have renounced our wonderful culture and have thrown themselves into Eastern mysticism and drugs, and you're not going to have them fix any of that? You just want them to come to Jesus? Now, he took a lot of flack for that. He still takes flack for that to this day. And people blame Pastor Chuck for that. Never mind the fact of how many millions of people have been saved because of those efforts. And you try something new. It's like, do, do we really want to go there? Do they really need us? When William Carey wanted to do the first missionary outreaches, nobody wanted to do it. Why are we going to go over there? They're not going to listen. They're Hindus. He's like, yeah, I know they're Hindus. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be you know, turned to Jesus. Even in your own life, when you try to make a strong personal change, and you want to start following Jesus for real and reading your Bible and attending church and serving and getting a handle on your speech and the things you watch and the things you do, people will start to dislike you for that. You've changed, man. You, you just totally changed. You think you're better than everybody now. You think you're better than me? Even, even like parents will say this to their kids. You think you're better than your old man? So it's just, you're, you, you think you should go to church every week, but I don't. So what are you saying about me? You used to be so much fun, man. What happened to you? You got all religious, got all uptight. What's wrong with you, man? Even wives and husbands will, will torture each other sometimes. It's that old crabs in a bucket analogy, right? If one crab tries to cr climb out of a bucket full of crabs, I don't know if this has been tested, you know, like empirically or not, but <laughs> let's say well, the, the crabs will pull them back down. We do this, it's, it's not good, but as easy it is to criticize, one of my, you know, this is not a Bible verse, but it's, it's a great quote. President Roosevelt said, it's not the critic who counts. Not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles. You don't get extra credit with God. Because God, do you realize that uh, David's kind of a violent man? And he really likes the ladies. The Lord's like, yeah, 
I know that. Just saying, I wouldn't make him king of Israel. Well, I didn't ask you, did I? Now, that makes you better than David. That makes you better than Samson, or better than the preacher you love to hate on. Why do we do this? I think there can be a number of reasons. I think sometimes we're afraid to mess up. We don't want to take big steps like Samson, because what if I do it wrong? What if I get on top of Mount Carmel and pray for fire from heaven and nothing comes down? Are we afraid of the fight? Maybe we realize it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get punched in the nose if I step out and do this. I know exactly what my daughter is going to say if I try this. I don't know if I can sit through that. Maybe we're jealous. Maybe Obadiah was a little jealous of Elijah. I kind of think he was the more I think about that story. Because what is he saying? He's like, if this could have been done all along, that says that maybe I could have been doing something and I wasn't. You know, I know pastors will get jealous of each other. You know, there are guys that, whenever I, I see a, a pastor who doesn't have a large ministry, and I don't, so I can say this, right? But whenever they start complaining, it's like, all anybody ever listens to is guys of big churches and big numbers. And it's really just not about that. And it's like, after a while, at first I'm like, yeah, man, totally. It's not about the numbers. Whatever. Hey, who cares, right? But then the longer you listen, it's like, you really don't have a problem with big churches. You're jealous that you don't have a big church. That's not the same thing, is it? But you can cloak it in something that sounds real spiritual. And maybe we're just numb to the fact that there's a war going on. These guys here certainly were. Samson, look, they, they're king now. And Sam's like, they are not our king. Jesus or God is our king. Samson, you just got to get with the times, man. They didn't realize they were in a battle. They were just accustomed to the way things were. But I think mostly we can find comfort in a kind of passive Christian virtue. Say, well, Jesus was, was kind and gentle. So if we're kind and gentle, never do anything. That's what it is to be a good person. So I'll never speak strongly. I'll never act boldly. I'll never try something new. I'll stand still and call it righteousness. But guys, that might not be faithfulness. That might be fear. I'm afraid to get out there and try anything. I'd rather stay here in the wilderness than pick up a sword and go into the promised land. So what if I die? What if I, what if I get hurt? The reproach of what is possible is too much for some people to handle. If he does it, maybe we could have done this a long time ago. And I should have done something. Maybe Obadiah was afraid, look, if there's no more need to hide the prophets and search for grass, then what good am I? Some people think that. Who is the guy in charge of navigating uh, or setting up the tents, let's say, during the wilderness wandering? Do you think he had any thoughts? Well, we get to the promised land. What, what do I do now? You don't need me anymore. Am I just going to be useless? Well, no, but that job won't be needed any longer. You've got to find something else to do. We don't want to hold on to a worse situation because we don't know how we'll fit into a new one. This is why God raises up heroes. God needs people sometimes to do it wrong. Why? Because at least it'll get done. I don't know if anybody else other than someone like Martin Luther could have broken what was going on in the church at that time. Some guy that was just that stubborn and hard-headed and all those things that you should not imitate. The other reformers were kind of like that too. And, and, and any great missionary or great you know, uh, pioneer of the faith, sometimes you're like, I don't, this, this seems like a rather tough individual. Do I want to be around somebody like John Wesley very much? Oh yeah, a glorious preacher. Yeah, but boy, he sure ran that, that denomination like a denomination. So well, maybe it shouldn't have been that harsh. A lot of people would say that after the hero passed on. They did a lot of great things. Here's what we don't want to do. But God raises up those people because like, hey, at least they're moving. 
I need somebody to beat up Philistines. Who do I call? <laughs> Samson. Uh, well, you know, Samson's kind of got this weird marriage thing. Will he beat up Philistines? Yes. Will anybody else? No. Then Samson it is. <laughs> the Philistines were invading and no one else was fighting. So the brash and violent Samson it was. Verse 14. Got to turn back to Judges here. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. That's right. Tick him off. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off in his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Another short sentence, with an awful lot that happens in it. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And that little ditty that he wrote, if you read that in the Hebrew, it, it reads like a mother goose rhyme. Like it's, it's taunting and it's short and it all rhymes like a limerick. It's just like he's, he's skipping away with a donkey's jawbone singing a little tune. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called Ramat Lehi, which means jawbone hill or heights of the jaw, you could call it. So Samson is tied up by his countrymen. He arrives at the Philistine encampment. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Now, you hear that phrase. We kind of think we know what it means. All right, good. But consider this. The ropes melted off of him. It's like an image of fire. Like he's so strong, he just rips them off like they had been burning the whole time. And he grabs the fresh jawbone of a donkey. So it wasn't like, you know, a skeleton along the side of the road. It could very well have been that this was an animal that had died in the, in the camp. And he dislodges the jawbone from the donkey itself, which it would have been big. Like you've seen maybe the head of a donkey before. It would have been a rather formidable weapon, but not enough to slay a thousand soldiers. Unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he writes this. It's so like, funny to me that he kills all these men with a bone. And he says, I killed a thousand Philistines. I killed a thousand. It's, and he names it Heights of the Jawbone. Jawbone Hill, right? The Holy Spirit empowered the man of God to break out of his restraints, pick up a bone, and beat a thousand men to death with it. That is on the list of things that the Holy Spirit has empowered people to do. Just saying, when you come in here and you say, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. You should pray that. You should also remember the upper limit on what the Spirit can empower somebody to do is pretty high. Do you have room in your theology for that? You better, because it's in your Bible. That's Old Testament. Yeah, it is Old Testament. But Joel said it's not going to be something different. It's going to be the same thing, but an increase of this. Psalm 18, David wrote this psalm, talking about all the things that the Lord empowers David to do. Let's read this. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. They sang this in church. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Cast them out like the mire of the streets could very well be a chamber pot metaphor. 
cast them out like the mire of the streets. That's a pretty intense psalm, Psalm 18. That's the one where he says, with you I can run against a troop. What does that mean? Meaning, I can face an entire army by myself. I can bend a bow of bronze. God is the God of war. And Israel knew this. The Holy Spirit could empower men to win miraculous victories in battle. It is very clear in this passage whom God approved of. And it was not the sniveling defeatists that arrested their own countrymen and turned him over to the enemy. What's the lesson for us here? If you decide to walk with the Lord, but you only agree to do those things that are obvious and safe and comfortable, you will quench the Holy Spirit's power. You will. If you say, God, lead us on. And then the Holy Spirit says, all right, pick up that jawbone and beat down some Philistines. Oh, no, Lord. All right. But the Holy Spirit asked him to do that. You say, Lord Jesus, lead me on to do amazing things for your kingdom. And the Lord says, I want you to go and evangelize to this person right now. Oh, I'm just kind of bashful, Lord Jesus. Well, you've just quenched the Holy Spirit. You asked God to stoke the fire and you poured water on it. That's what it means to quench something, right? To quench the Holy Spirit. You only do the things that are obvious. Some people will we'll pray and we know that God said yes if everything works out perfectly. That's, that's not what prayer is for, guys. Not that you shouldn't pray in those situations. But you pray for the Lord to open up a way where there is no way. You only, pray, you only say, I'll do things that are safe, Lord Jesus. Well, you won't walk on water. Right? Lord, that be you. Command me to come out there on the water. But, you know, like, make sure that it's, you know, solid first. Raise up an island from the water for me to walk on first. No, no. Or comfortable. See, God, this is how I was raised, and I'm cool with, like, this to this. So, like, if you could keep it within that, I'd really appreciate it. And the Lord goes, I'm the God of the universe. And the thing is, the Lord is a gentleman, and he usually does not grab you by the scruff of the neck and make them do what he wants. He asks. We're his children, not his slaves. We are, but you know the, the point I'm trying to make here. Sometimes fear in the church masquerades as faith. And we say, well, I don't know if the Lord would want us to do that, Samson. You shouldn't stand against what's just unwise, Samson. And we say that the Holy Spirit is, is not leading such and such, or would not. People say, God wouldn't ask you to do, hold on now. The Holy Spirit is wild. I mean that in a good way. And unpredictable. And even violent in certain cases. I'm trying to expand your understanding of what God can do and who God is beyond the nice little box that we tend to put God in. Because that's not one that we got from Scripture. We shouldn't have people looking elsewhere for vigorous, energetic spirituality. We already have that. Look at the life of Jesus. Was Jesus a weak person? Was Jesus a passive person? Maybe a better way to put it. No, he was not. Jesus was bold as a lion. He was gentle, but you didn't get one over on Jesus. You didn't bully Jesus, did you? I, every, Jesus got the better of every exchange he was ever in because God was with him. But some of us are too afraid, and I'll put myself in this category sometimes. I'm not preaching at nobody. But we can be afraid even to have a tough conversation because this feels angry and it doesn't feel nice and, and God doesn't like that. Well, Jesus is the one who said, you brood of vipers. So did his cousin, by the way. They both said that. 
Nice family. His brother was the one that said faith without works is dead. They were a nice family, but maybe not nice in the sense that I'm talking about here. You need not quietly sit still and accept the circumstances of your life as God's will because they happened. Because God has sent you out, Christian, full of the Holy Spirit to bring hope to people. Bring hope to your own life. Now we say, well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord? Yes, of course. But patience is a virtue in the Bible, but so is courage. So is courage. This chapter is not about sitting still. There are verses about that. This one's about picking up a donkey's jawbone and smacking a Philistine upside the head with it. It's courage. And even the children of Israel, when they were told to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, they had to keep moving forward and walk through the walls of water that the Lord provided. God told Joshua and the children of Israel, no one will stand against you. But as I like to say, they still had to swing the swords. They weren't in their own strength. They were in the Lord's strength. But they had to step out in faith. You look at your life. What could be done here? What might be done if I step out or step up or say, Lord, lead me in this situation, in this relationship or in this political situation even? What about what's going on in this church? What about what's going on in my workplace? If God were to step in and act, what would he do? So I don't, I, I don't think I'm the person that God could use. Well, even if all you have is a jawbone, friend, I wouldn't recommend anybody go to battle against, you know, a Iron Age army with a jawbone. But he did. You don't think they were firing arrows at Samson and had spears and swords? The Philistines had taken away all the swords out of Israel. And there he is. There's nothing in the Bible that says, by the way, that Samson was some big hulking dude. He's in there swinging a jawbone around. And they kept coming. That's the thing that always baffles me too. First 600 were no good, but this next one, that'll, that'll get them for sure. Even if all you got is a jawbone, guys, swing it hard and watch the Lord bring victory. Because the Lord says with him, you can run against a troop. You can bend a bow of bronze. I don't like talking about things that make us sound good. Well, tell it to David. With you, Lord, oh man, I was out there and they were like dust under my feet, God, because you were with me. David, it's a little much. Well, God said, I like that. Put that in the Bible. Put that number 18 right there in the list, David. I like that one a lot. In fact, put, put that one in there twice. Once in the book of Samuel and once in the book of Psalms. I want people to get this, that I'm with you. Look at your life. Where do you need victory? What sins are you still struggling against? What guilt are you still having a hard time carrying? Look at your job. Look at your, your work situation. Where are you being asked to do things that are not righteous and not good? Or maybe, where is your job starting to suck out the joy and the spirituality of your life and you've got to make a change? What about your marriage? Where are things starting to fall apart? Or your community? Have a little courage, Christian. We should pray, but you pray and then go. The early church was told, do not go anywhere, but pray and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then once you have the Holy Spirit, go! Get up and go, friends. Nobody else would fight. So God said, all right, I guess it's all you then, Samson. Would have liked to have used you and your 3,000 friends, but I guess it's just going to be you. Maybe that's your, your case too. Well, verse 18 through 20. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakore, which means the place of the one who prayed. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Well, as you might expect, after slaying a thousand Philistines, brutal deaths here. You know, it's not like a you know, samurai ninja movie where it's like one strike is getting like four people. Like he's beating them down in their armor. And the adrenaline is pumping and the Holy Spirit's with them. And then it's all over and, oh, I need some Gatorade right about now. <laughs> and he was so thirsty, he was about to die from this. Imagine his muscles would have been tensing up and cramping. He'd been out in the heat, been out in the sun. I'm sure he had wounds, was bleeding. But what does he do? He called upon the Lord. He called upon the Lord for help. This is why you cannot put Samson in the category of just those rascals of the Bible with nothing redeeming about them. This is the first time we see Samson praying. That doesn't mean it was the first time Samson prayed. We never see Samson serving false idols. Never. Despite all his flaws, Samson's God was Jehovah God. The whole time through his life. And God is willing to forgive an awful lot when the Lord is your God. Have you noticed that? And we're Christians, guys. I hope we've noticed that. He's willing to forgive everything if the Lord is your God. And he gives Samson the same miracle he gave Moses in the wilderness twice. In Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. When he was in need, he cried out to the Lord and God provided. He quenched his thirst. This is where I think you're starting to see Samson grow up a little bit. I, I, I would think he's very young at this part of the story. He's just getting married for the first time, which tended to happen much younger back then. And if you think about, okay, the actions, maybe an 18, 19-year-old boy, that starts to make a little more sense, doesn't it? Not a 40-year-old man doing things like this. But he's, he's now slain these Philistines. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's thirsty. He prays. God answers his prayer. And then it says he begins to judge Israel for 20 years. He's growing up. He's a man of God. And those 20 years should not be overlooked. He didn't start great, and he doesn't finish great. Actually, he finishes great. But it unfortunately doesn't have to, didn't go very well up to the end there. And of course here, the thirst was real, but it's symbolic too. It's a symbolic of the need to drink deep of the well of the Holy Spirit. Not just for his problems, not just for his battles, but for the Lord's sake himself. For the, for the soul of Samson. This has seemed to have been his problem so far. He obviously knew the Lord to some degree. He obviously worshipped the Lord. And he was willing to serve the Lord. But he does not really seem to be a particularly, to use the word we use Sunday, godly or pious person, does he? Doesn't seem to have that lifestyle of prayer and discipline. He needed to be seeking God, not just to slay thousands of Philistines or to round up 300 foxes, but to feed his own soul. God, I'm trying to make the point today, God raises up flawed heroes. I'm trying to tell you this so that you won't be too scared to do the wrong thing when God calls you out. But here's the thing to remember too, most important, you don't have to be a flawed hero in your life. You can just be a regular, spiritual, godly hero. You don't have to be like Samson. The answer is to know the Lord. You can be like Christ, who's your ultimate example anyway. This is all about serving God. It's not about our pride. Samson's pride was involved quite a bit in this story, wasn't it? And you can't, again, hardly blame him for that. But at the same time, it's not about those things. It's not even ultimately about the people he was serving. That's secondary, but primary is the love of the Lord God himself. 
about seeking God, fulfilling the needs of your soul. Not just the thing God helps you do, but what God delivers and ministers to your own soul. I think the thing that you can learn from this, and I, I've had to learn this in my life, learning to drink from the well, drink from the river of the Holy Spirit of God is a lesson that active people learn faster. When you're fighting the Philistines, you're going to get thirsty quick, and you're going to need help. You're going to need the, the water of life from the Lord. When you recognize your need for the Lord because you're in the battle, you know, you're serving in ministry, you're trying to turn this family around, you're trying to get a devotional life going, you recognize your need. It's much easier to learn how much you need if you get out there in the battle. You know, the, the ones that need water during a football game are usually the ones that are playing both ways. They come off the field and they're... They're panting and there's sweat running down their face and, you know, they, they're squirting water bottles into their mouths. And, you know, meanwhile, there's like the second string long snapper just kind of hanging out. You know, no disrespect, but like, you see that guy reaching over and getting some water. You're kind of like, what do you need water for? <laughs> we all need water to live. Yeah, but who really understands how much they need water? The one who's out there in the fight, man. The one who's out there breaking some Philistine heads with a donkey's jawbone. You will learn your need for God faster the more steps of faith you take. John 7, Jesus said this, very closely related passage. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what does the water represent? Verse 39, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He says, if you're thirsty, you come to me, and I'll give you living water. I'm not just going to pour it into you. I'm going to pour it out of you. Out of your heart are going to come rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit's power, John says. This, is, this was about the Holy Spirit. And John's writing to New Testament Christians, like, you all know all about the Holy Spirit. And I hope you do. I hope you know what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, have rivers of living water gushing in your life so that every day when you've got to get up and you've got to fight that battle, maybe going to work for you is a battle. I've had those jobs where you're like, I just, I can't deal with him again. You know, when you've got an assignment, maybe you got, when I, like the job I had, where you had partners for the day. Just please don't put me with that guy. It's fine with that guy. It's going to be eight hours of battle back and forth. And you show up, oh, sure enough. And then you do it four days in a row and your boss says something like, well, you all work real well together. It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> I do, but I probably work better with, uh, you know, the nice guy over there. Maybe your marriage is like that, where it's a battle. You're constantly, everywhere you turn, there's something else you've got to strike down and you've got to fight. And you need that water every day. Maybe if you're like me, seeing what's going on in the nation, it's a, it's a fight, even though it's not personally affecting you, maybe. Just seeing it is grieving to your soul and your spirit. You need the water, but the where, where you get water from is Jesus. He's the rock in the wilderness. And the good news is that the Jesus has been glorified. When Jesus said that, he had not been glorified. He had not been crucified or risen from the dead or ascended to heaven or sent the Spirit. Now we're on the other end of that. So that's available for you. So if you're here and you're like Samson, you're like, man, I've been fighting all day. I'm thirsty, Lord. Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Isaiah said, buy the water of life without price. The Lord will satisfy that longing and then send you out 
to make you useful. Because we need heroes. And I'm not talking about being somebody they're going to make a statue of someday. I'm talking about in your sphere of influence, in the garden God has given you, in your family. That's what Joshua said. As for me and my house, that's where we need heroes. As for me and my house. You ask great men and women, who do you look up to the most of everybody you've ever, ever heard of? And we always expect them to say something like, you know, Napoleon or, you know, Alexander the Great. So they're like, my mom, my dad. Or you look at somebody like, well, who, who first taught you the Bible? You great Bible scholar, teacher. Well, this, you know, this old guy at a church taught me Sunday school every week. It's like, Really? You don't know who you're affecting. You don't know. Well, it's just a small little territory. There's no such thing. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are the smallest of the village of Israel, I don't care. Out of you is going to shine a light that's going to change the whole world. A king will be born there. Same thing for you. Our lesson tonight, if I want, what I want you to take away from this, is to not be a passive Christian when God has called us to be active Christians. To step out and realize that God is with you and not to be so quote-unquote righteous that all we can do is point out what everybody else is doing wrong so we never step out and do anything. Ecclesiastes 7.16 actually says, do not be overly righteous or overly wise, for why should you destroy yourself? What's his point? He says, don't, just, you read the sarcasm in the verse there. Right? Don't be so righteous. You can't help anybody. You'll come along and say, hey, man, we, we got back from this church retreat and God spoke and the Holy Spirit was poured out and, and it was wonderful. And now but somebody's going to sit there picking apart the sermon and what some guy said. Or, you know, I heard what they prayed and you, know, that's, you really shouldn't do that. It's like, what is that? What is that? That's being overly righteous. We don't want to be afraid to step up and step out. I, you know, I, I've coached baseball. I've helped coach baseball. And sometimes you get the kid that is afraid to get up there and swing the bat. And he'll get up there and he'll hold in, he'll back away, or he'll just kind of, you know, you know, flop a little bit. And like, come on, I just need you to take a swing. I'll say that before I even throw the ball. Just pretend the ball's coming and, and take a swing. Why? Because if you're swinging, I can correct your swing. Okay, see, what you're doing is you're, you're stepping out. Every child does that. They step outside the box when they swing, and they wonder why they miss every ball. But it's like, I got to see it first. Okay, I see what you're doing. You're dropping your elbow too low. This is another one. Do you take golf lessons? Yeah, I can tell because you're swinging like this. Just, you're going to try to swing flat, not down. It's the same thing with the Lord. Well, I don't want to do it wrong. Well, your coach wants to see you try. Hey, looking good, but keep that elbow up. Looking good, but when you get those ground balls, get down into the dirt. Don't be afraid. God can work with motion, you understand. And he's not going to come down on you for trying to do a good thing and messing it up. God's going to be like, hey, I like where your heart's at. Let's try that again. Let's do a little better this time. Are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. Let's go kill some Philistines. What could Samson have been if he had stayed close to his God his whole life? What if this was the end of his story? Samson led Israel for 45 years, and he did not turn from the right hand or to the left, and the land had peace for two generations after him. If he had stayed close to his God, that's exactly what would have happened. Now let's ask another question for you guys. What could God do in your life if you stayed close to your God? Just look at you. I love doing this. Just look at your, your life and your problems and your issues and say, if Jesus were to step in and fix this, what would happen? 
And don't do the whole, you know, like, like the magic genie where it claps his hands and everything goes to normal. Now, if Jesus were to come in and do something to fix this, what would he do? Cool. Go do that. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not Jesus. No, but you have the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus. I'll mess it up. Yeah, probably. But guess what? The Lord can work through that too. I'm never going to get up here and preach the perfect sermon. It's never going to happen. But the Lord uses it because it's his word and it's done in faith and it's done humbly. I want to see the church recover these doctrines of vigorous action. I think sometimes we've cultivated a personality type in the church that is intimidated by action and by fortitude. It just makes us uncomfortable to hear somebody say, let's go. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Really? Because David was God's favorite guy. Or aren't we supposed to be humble and embrace our weaknesses? Yes. But that's not the same thing as passive inaction. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, when I am weak, then I'm strong. So I'll delight in my weaknesses. Great. But what did Paul do? Paul said, I'm weak and I'm going anyway. That's delighting in your weaknesses. Not saying I'm too weak to do anything, so I'll just hear. That's a lack of faith. Because what you're saying is God cannot supply everything I need when I step out in my weakness. Peter couldn't walk on water. He had that weakness. Some of you might share that same weakness. Called density, you know. You call me dense, let's move on, okay? But he had faith that God could supply where he was weak and stepped out of the boat. Samson couldn't kill a thousand Philistines. Wasn't the Incredible Hulk who's going to smash everybody to pieces? He was just a guy with long hair. But he knew that where I am weak, that's where God is strong. So I'm going to step out into the battle and see God's strength come in. Do you understand? Delighting in your weakness as a Christian is not to sit back and do nothing. It's to recognize you're weak and go anyway. I'm hoping I'm giving some of you permission to grab hold of something in your life and say, we're going to do this right. That's for me and my house, me and my family. That's for me and my job. That's for me and my community. My church, we're going to serve the Lord. Grab hold of that jawbone and swing. Do the right thing as best you can. And trust that God is going to take care of the rest. Because just like Israel needed a hero, so do the people in your life. And God wants to use you to do that. To fill you up with his Holy Spirit's power. So that the strength you have is completely irrelevant to the equation. Because God is with you. And you step out and you won't be glorified. God will be glorified. That's why God gives us stories of men like Samson, so that we go, if God could do it for that old dude, for that guy and all his problems, I don't do all that stuff. And I know Jesus. I'm more righteous than he is. And I know Christ. So let's go. That's why God gives us examples. So look at the things that God needs to correct in your life. Where are the Philistines taking control of things that they shouldn't have? And where have you been listening to those voices in your head that said, just learn to live with it. It's never going to change. And find where the Lord is calling out that Samson part of you. And say, Lord, I want to see change. Because God does too. You wouldn't be feeling it if God wasn't feeling it. Step up and be the hero.